and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, do please sit down. Now let me encourage you, if you would, to uh, turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12 and uh, you'll find uh, the particular verses we're looking for on page 1018, 1018. You might also like to uh, pull out of your uh, service sheet, if you haven't fallen out already, um, a, a handout uh, of uh, the, uh, the sermon tonight. So if you like these things to guide you through, uh, then there it is on a green piece of paper and um, I'll refer to that as we go Um, if that helps you to either take notes or to see where we are. And uh, we're in the the last of uh, a series looking through Mark's uh, Gospel. Uh, We started at the end of chapter 11 and uh, we end tonight chapter 12, uh, verses 38 to 44. I wonder if I can ask you as we begin this evening, who do you look up to in the Christian life? Who do you aspire to be like? Well, whoever you do aspire to be like, getting to know what makes people tick is very revealing, isn't it? Uh, I've always admired the actor Robin Williams. Uh, That was until I heard him interviewed some years ago, and as I heard him speak, I discovered what a a proud and boastful man he is, and I've never quite enjoyed his movies as much since. I don't think I laugh quite as hard now. Uh, I read this a few years ago, Peter Lorimer, Leeds and Scotland hero. Uh, When I was a lad, Lorimer played for Leeds. Many of you will know I'm a Leeds supporter. We have actually, I should add, often um, when Philip Hacking is preaching up here, he tells how well Sheffield Wednesday are doing. They, of course, have lost all their games um, since the beginning of the season. Leeds have won four out of four. And uh, one of those was a League Cup match. The others uh, were League matches. And they still have minus six points. Uh, It's not a great start for the season. Anyway, I've always been a a Leeds fan. And and so I read this... uh, Peter Lorimer, when he was playing, had the fastest shot in football, recorded at over 70 miles an hour. Well, as a boy, I would have loved to have been in Peter Lorimer's shoes, not when he was kicking a ball, of course, but I would love to have been uh, him. And I guess I aspired to be like him, so when I saw this book, I picked it up. Now, let me tell you, after reading this book, Peter Lorimer, Leeds and Scotland hero, Peter Lorimer is no hero of mine. He's so full of himself. It's a horrible book. Worse still was this book by uh, Ilina Stasi. I didn't even manage to get through this uh, autobiography. Um, He was uh, one of the colourful characters of tennis when I first uh, started to play. But 50 pages into the book I had to put it down because I was so sickened by it. Page after page is about Nastasi's sexual conquests. His life was driven by sex and in this book he parades the way that he used women to satisfy his lust. It's a horrible book. Please don't ever read it. It's absolutely horrible. Now, you see, getting to know what makes people tick is very revealing. When I used to watch tennis, he was quite a funny man. I can't bear the man. I know I'm not supposed to say that as a Christian, but I can't. Now, it is the same in the Christian life. We have to get to know what is behind people. In the evangelical church, we rightly value Bible teaching. We love to learn from those who open the Bible to us. And we might even aspire to be like them, but that can be very dangerous. Because until we know people, until we know what makes them tick and understand their motives, we might well follow people who are, well, very far from being godly. And that was a huge danger for God's people 
in Jesus' day. Which is why Jesus warns, and it's the first point on the uh, handout, watch out for the scribes, verses 38 to 40 of Mark 12. The the scribes, the teachers of the law, were great Bible teachers. They were the great Bible teachers of the day. They were biblical expositors and commentators who were devoted to the biblical text. They were really serious about their Bible study. We mustn't misunderstand that the teachers of the law weren't liberal scholars. They they weren't the sort of leaders who undermined the Bible. No, that was the the Sadducees. They were the theological liberals of the day. We, We met them a few weeks back in verses 18 to 27. No, the scribes, the teachers of the law, were were theologically conservative and reverent in their approach to the Bible. In our terms, they would have been the guys who would be the keynote speakers at at Keswick and Word Alive and and all the Bible conventions we'd attend and, and consider sound. The scribes then were hugely admired and respected by the majority. So what a shock, as Jesus says, verse 38, watch out for the teachers of the law. Now, last week we saw how Jesus exposed the teaching of these teachers. It was brilliant, wasn't it? Just with one question, Jesus showed the error of the scribes' teaching. They didn't understand Psalm 110, and in not understanding Psalm 110, they missed that the Christ is so much more than the son of David. Oh, yes, they knew that the Christ was important, but they had no understanding of the uniqueness of Christ, and most crucially, the divinity of Christ. And now we'll see that failing to grasp that central truth led them into all manner of errors. See, their teaching was deeply flawed. But here, quite strikingly, Jesus doesn't issue this warning because of their teaching per se. No, here, Jesus questions their motives. You see, I put it on the sheet, they loved the praise of men. Again, verse 38, Jesus says, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. You see, you get a picture of them, don't you? They they wore special clothes so that people would notice them and greet them in public. They loved to sit up front in the synagogue and they expected to be on the top table at civic functions or or if you had a wedding, they'd want to be on the top table. They loved the praise of men. They thought they were so important. And that is a huge danger. I'm always thrilled when when someone wants to talk to me about whether they should consider the possibility of full-time paid Christian ministry. It might not be right for them, but I'm thrilled if people want to think that through. And when that happens, I look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 with them and we consider the qualities listed for a leader in God's church. And then at some point I will ask them if they've got the four G's under control. I wonder if you know the four G's. I put them down on the handout there. Girls, gold, grog and glory. No, I didn't make them up. Uh, I, I don't know I wish I did or not, but anyway, there we are. Girls, gold, grog and glory. The four things that most are most likely to bring down a minister, to wreck a ministry and then to destroy a church. So when somebody comes to speak to me about the possibility of full-time paid Christian ministry, I'll discuss with them the first of the G's, girls. I ask them, do you have sex under control? If you're married, are you faithful? And not just are you technically faithful, are you a one-woman man? Or are you a flirt? You always have your eye on another woman. You might not have actually ever committed adultery, but you're kind of one of those people. I'll talk to them about gold. I'll ask, are you greedy for money? Are you a materialist? 
We'll talk about grog. Do you have a problem with drink or drugs? Has that been a weakness in the past? Have you got that under control? And then I'll ask them about glory. Are you proud? Are you actually wanting to make a name for yourself? Is that what you're about? You see, those are the things that destroy ministries and damage churches. And we know it all too painfully from experience, of course. We know of ministers who've been, been unfaithful to their wives or who've been caught up in pornography. And we know the effect that has on a church family when it comes out into the open. Uh, some years back now, the, the journal Christianity Today conducted a survey where 12% of pastors questioned admitted to having sex in the course of their pastoral work. Isn't that amazing? 12%. 18% admitted to more general sexual involvement with those they were pastoring. Now, it's unlikely that these people went into the job with the intention of being sexually immoral. But it happens, and when it does, it has a devastating effect on the whole church family. Uh, We know the scandal of those who are uh, in it for money, most obviously the televangelists in the States. But there are plenty of others, less high profile, whose ministry has been compromised by a love of money and a desire for wealth. And grog. You see, I can think of a minister who became an alcoholic, And you can imagine the hurt and sadness that caused the church, not to mention how it dishonoured Christ's name in the local community. Girls, gold and grog destroy churches and we warn people to avoid them. Ministers are warned to to avoid being in places alone with women, to be above board in their financial dealings, to beware when their support group is Johnny Walker and Jack Daniels. Got to watch it when those things happen. As evangelicals, we see the danger of girls, gold and grog. But here's the point for tonight. What of glory? We seem to be less aware of that danger. But here's what Jesus is dealing with here. You see, when a leader wants glory for themselves, it colours everything. If we want the praise of men, we will not be faithful in ministry. When we want everyone to like us, we'll we'll shy away from saying the hard thing from the pulpit in case it offends. So wanting the praise of men affects Bible teaching. Here were the great Bible teachers of the day, but they loved the praise of men. And you can be sure their Bible teaching would have been affected. If we crave the love of others or, or long for promotion in the wider church, We'll think twice about making bold decisions that might upset people in the wider church. We don't want to rock the boat or or speak out in case those in authority hold it against us and don't offer us the next job up the ecclesiastical ladder. So you see, wanting the praise of men, wanting glory, affects the decisions we make. When we love glory, we want to speak at big conferences, even if it means being away too often from our local church. And we'll be tempted not to stay with a church for long, when, uh, for the long haul, when promotion to a bigger church becomes available. Even using the word promotion says it all. See, seeking glory affects our commitment to God's flock. Wanting glory clouds our judgment. And so the Christian leader who chases glory will damage a church. It is a serious problem. And that's why Jesus says here, verse 38, watch out for the teachers of the law. They loved glory. They loved the praise of men. And that robs God. For glory is rightly his and his alone. Of course, the scribes should have known that. William Lane very astutely comments like this. Their love of the law 
should have made them singularly zealous that God alone should receive the praise of men. It may not appear to be as dangerous as girls, gold and grog, but don't be fooled. Watch out for the Bible teacher who loves and looks for glory. How do you spot the glory hunters? Well, look again at verse 38. See, they like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. Uh, the, the flowing robes described here were the white linen mantles reaching the feet. Wearing flowing robes were a mark of distinction for them. Like a graduation gown. You know, you put your graduation gown on, everybody knows you graduate. You feel good about yourself, don't you? Or the purple robes a bishop wears. Now, don't mishear me. Just because people wear clothes that mark them out doesn't mean they're glory hunters. I'm not saying that every ecclesiastical person that wears special clothes is a glory hunter. That's not it at all. That'd be far too simplistic to say that. But, says Jesus, watch out for the person who loves to be seen and recognised. The person who loves putting on the special clothes because it gives them recognition and respect, they think. Watch out for those who long to sit in the special seats, those who want to be up front all the time, those who keep pushing themselves forward. They're the glory hunters. Me, me, me. Watch out for the person who gets upset because they they haven't been put on the top table at a special function. Their name hasn't been mentioned when lots of other people's has. Watch out for the scribes. Watch out for the scribes. And watch out if that's you. Because many of us are leaders here, even if we may not be the leader. They love the praise of men then. And they love the praise of men because, as we saw last week, they didn't understand who Christ was. See, had they done so, had, had they known who the Christ was really, they'd have wanted to give him all the praise. Watch out for the scribes because they love the praise of men. Secondly, uh, watch out for the scribes because they love the prize of money. Verse 40. See, they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. See, here we see the real lack of integrity of the scribes. Yes, they were the Bible teachers of the day, yet they conveniently forgot the Lord's word when it came to widows. See, the scribes should have had compassion towards widows. They should have longed to protect widows because the Lord is concerned for the disadvantaged. Uh, Keep your finger in in Mark 12 and and flip back to us uh, with me uh, to the first of those uh, readings that we had that Anthony read earlier to Exodus chapter 22. Page 80 is the page number. And we'll see here just how concerned the Lord is for the disadvantaged and particularly widows are mentioned. Page 80, Exodus 22 and verse 22. It's easy to remember. 22, 22. See what it says? Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. Yet that's exactly what the scribes, the teachers of the law were doing. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I'll certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused. It says it all, doesn't it? It's clear God abhors taking advantage of the disadvantaged. And the scribes must have known Exodus 22, 22. They were the teachers of the law. 
They must have known how much the Lord detested any action which took advantage of widows. And yet, as we flip back to Mark chapter 12, verse 40, we see they robbed these women of their homes. Now that's why Jesus warned his disciples about the scribes. They may have appeared to be teaching things that were orthodox, but they were not treating widows the way they were. And so you can know they weren't committed to Exodus 22.22. And if they could be selective with Exodus 22, what else were they conveniently omitting to teach? So you can tell a, 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 a true teacher not only by what they teach, but also by how they live. And if how they live is not authentic, then in time they've either got to change their teaching or they've got to change their living. It will come into parallel at some point. And until it is, something's going to change. See, in verses 38 and 39 then, Jesus warned that the scribes were glory hunters. Here in verse 40, it is a warning that they loved gold. The deceitfulness of wealth, you see, they devoured widows' houses. This was the love of money. They wanted them for themselves. And the love of money is very dangerous. Now let me for a moment, if I may, be autobiographical. I've I've pondered long and hard this week as to whether I should do this because Matthew chapter six uh, in Matthew chapter six Jesus says, "Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men." So it is hard to talk about money and my own approach to money if I'm in some way doing it in order to get praise. But I've tested my heart and I can say, I think honestly, that I'm not doing it for that reason, but rather to try and show you the dangers of money. Uh, Some years ago I heard the Australian Bible teacher Philip Jensen speak on the dangers of money to a group of ministers. And and as a result of his teaching I put a few rules in my life when it comes to money. And I'll explain why. First, whenever I have an outside speaking engagement I give all the money I get to the church I'm working for. See, honorarians for speaking at conventions can be quite substantial. A few years ago I was speaking at a a week-long thing, they gave me £600. It's not little money. It might be not huge, but it's not little money. Now, by making a rule to give whatever I get to the church, I can make decisions about speaking engagements without my motives being cluttered. If I'm financially hard-pressed and I get a phone call or an email or a letter asking me to speak at something, I won't agree to speak at it because it's a nice little earner. because I'm not going to get anything from it financially. So if I agree to speak at it, it's uh, hopefully because I'm the right person to do the job. That's the first rule. Second, I prefer not to take financial gifts from members of the congregation. See, imagine that I receive a financial gift from a member of the congregation every Christmas, and then I find myself having to challenge that person about something spiritual. You know what will happen, I'll be tempted to think, if I rebuke this person, I may not get that gift next Christmas. Now that is hopeless, because I'm here under God to help people to live godly lives. And I don't need anything to hinder me, because challenging people is hard enough as it is. Third, I make it a rule not to know how much people give to the church. Because if I'm in a PCC meeting and someone disagrees over something important, And if I know they're a big contributor to the church's finances, I might be tempted to change my thinking or to tone down my argument so as not to lose that person's giving. Now, they're just examples, and I got them really all from Philip Jensen, but you see the point of all this? Money confuses motives. It's the deceitfulness of wealth. And so Jesus says here in verse 40, watch out for the scribes. 
because, you see, they devoured widows' houses. They were after money. They loved glory and they loved gold. They loved the praise of men. They loved the prize of money. Watch out for the scribes. Secondly, uh, watch the widows. Over the page on the handout, watch the widows, verses 41 to 44. Now, what if you can see how these two sections go together? Verse 40, the scribes devoured widows' houses, robbing them financially. And then we'll see Mark showed us, shows us a widow putting money into the treasury in verse 42. So you see the, how Mark has, uh, has constructed his gospel. So this widow is held up in contrast to the scribes. See, here's a widow who gave everything she had to the Lord compared with the scribes who used their position serving the Lord to take for themselves, to take from poor widows and to get all the glory they could get. Here is a contrast then between the sham righteousness of the scribes and genuine wholehearted devotion to God. And so in verse 43, Jesus said to his disciples, watch the widow. And you'll see, she had no praise from men. Verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. Now you can picture the scene. Jesus is in the temple. More precisely, he was in the section of the temple known as the court of the women. That was the part of the temple where there were 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles around the walls. The trumpet shape meant that as money was thrown in, tossed into these receptacles, the coins would hit the mouth of the trumpet, roll down and then cascade into the boxes below, making a crashing sound that would then bellow out of the trumpet. Of course, there was no paper money in those days. So the more coins that were thrown in, the more noise. And gold, I'm told, made a more pleasing sound than copper. And so as Jesus sat there and watched as temple worshippers threw in their offerings, many of them thrown in huge amounts at the end of verse 41, everyone in the temple court would have heard how much had been thrown in. A big noise, crash, bang, and as you throw your money in. By contrast, verse 42, Jesus saw a poor widow put in two copper coins. The footnote tells us, as you'll see it there in the NIV, that she put in two leptons. Lepton literally meaning thin one. So she threw in just two thin little copper coins, two of the smallest coins in circulation in first century Palestine, and as she put them into the trumpets and as they pathetically rolled down the receptacles, no one would have noticed the two faint little clicks as they landed in the money box below. No one would have noticed except Jesus. And his verdict, verse 43... Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. See, Jesus saw in the woman an example his disciples needed to emulate. Many people threw in large amounts and they received their reward, the praise of men, because everybody heard what they were putting in. She put in nothing, well, nothing to speak of. And you and I could be sure she received no praise from men at all. How different she was from the teacher of the law. See, she didn't want to rob God of his glory. She wanted to give everything she could to the Lord. The fact that she gave two coins is significant. It wasn't just that she only had one coin left. She could easily have given one and kept the other. That still would have been a considerable gift from her. That would have been half that she, that she owned. But no, she wanted to give everything. 
The widow's gift represented total commitment to God and it is in such contrast with the false religion of the teachers of the law. You see what this teaches us? False religion, false leaders use religion for their own ends, for their own glory. False leaders want honour and position and will take for themselves. She only wanted to give to the Lord. She wanted no glory for herself. It's a huge challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge for any Christian leader. It's a challenge for any Christian leader here to be self-giving and not self-seeking. Let me ask you, why are you on the PCC? If you are, why do you lead a home group or help out in the Sunday school? Why do you play in the music group? Why do you do these things? So that people will look at you and say how great you are? Watch the widow and we have to ask, am I serving or taking? Am I a, a, a giver or a getter? See, only Jesus can read hearts. But actually on this one, we don't need to read hearts. It's easy to spot the difference between a giver and a getter. I've noticed since I've been here in the last 18 months, one person who is a terrific giver, a real server. He's simply willing to be used. He's never upset if he's not asked to do things. He never pushes himself forward. He's always willing, but never pushing himself forward. And he's always pleased when others do things well. Even though he could have done those things, maybe done them better. He's just pleased to see things being done well. When I think of others, and it's clearly all about their ministry, their position, their gifts, their need to be used, they get upset if they don't get a public thank you, it's all about them. They're getters, not givers. So easy to spot. You don't actually have to be able to read hearts to read this one. And it is a most unattractive thing in the Christian life when people want glory, when they want to get, when they use religion for themselves. Watch the widow. She had no praise for men and she did not prize money. See, she put in two coins and that was significant because, verse 44, it was everything, all she had to live on. She walked out of the temple with nothing, absolutely nothing for the rest of the week or month, I don't know. This widow was uh, singled out by Jesus, not because of how much she gave, but how much she had left. That is what defines our giving. See, the number of noughts on a cheque tells us very little, does it? Actually, as I've been studying this passage, I've been wondering how helpful it is when we pass the bag around at the end of the service. See, let me ask the finance management group and the PCC, please, to consider whether we should do away with this system for collecting money. It's a very public way of doing things. Is it helpful? I'd love it if we'd look into that as a finance management group and PCC. As we pass the bag around at the end of the service, you see, you might find yourself standing next to someone who puts in a whole wad of notes. I know you're not supposed to look, but, you know, we tend to see, don't we? And that might make us feel quite embarrassed about dropping in a fiver or a pound. But if giving that five-pound note means we have next to nothing to live on for the rest of the week or month, we might well say with Jesus, verse 43, this person has put in more than everyone else. See, the widow is a challenge to us. As a challenge to us about the way we give money. Maybe we should stop doing that. Maybe we'll come to the conclusion that we'll have some boxes at the back that don't make a chink when you put money in. And you can do it that way if you want or not. The, will the widow is a challenge to us to put our money where our mouth is as well. We've sung this evening, Here I am to worship and bow down and say, You're my God. You're altogether lovely and worthy and wonderful to me. 
We've sung, mere words are not sufficient thanks. Take my life, transform and change me that I might be a living sacrifice. We've sung words of total commitment. They're awesome words. It's great we've sung them. We should sing them. Does our bank balance reflect that? Watch the widow. She put the money where her mouth was. And let me ask you, what will motivate us to give as she gave? Well, remember, all this happened in the temple. Everything we've been looking at over these last weeks, most of it happened in the temple courts. And the temple, of course, is where sacrifices were made daily. Sacrifices made to deal with sin. And just as Jesus looked at the motives of the scribes, I think we can be sure that he'd have seen the motive of this woman. And he wouldn't have held her up as an example had her motives not been right. So I guess she was responding to the shed blood of the sacrifices. Yeah, every day, bulls and goats, blood everywhere. It was a horrible, horrible thing to see. Blood everywhere saying, in order for you to be forgiven, somebody has to die. That's what the sacrifices told us. And I think she was making response to those sacrifices, to the God who made provision for her to be forgiven. Now she won't have known what we know. She won't have known of the shed blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, the greatest sacrifice, the sacrifice that all the other sacrifices were ultimately pointing towards. And of course we do know about that sacrifice. So how much more should we be willing to give everything in response? We love because he first loved us. Watch out for the scribes, watch the widow, thirdly and briefly, watched by Jesus. You see, you see there in verse 41, Jesus watched the crowd. We've seen he watched the widow. And, of course, we've seen how he watched the scribes. And as he watched their actions, notice two clever play on words in this passage. The first comes in verse 40. As he watched the scribes, he concluded, such men will be punished most severely. A more literal translation could be, such men will receive a wealth of judgment. It's a very clever play on words. They were trying to become wealthy by devouring widows and Jesus says the result was that they would receive a wealth of judgment. That's where their wealth will be. They'd been watched by Jesus just as we are and judge Jesus sees what no one else sees. He sees the secrets of our hearts. He sees the motives behind our actions. Or we can make lengthy prayers as the scribes did in verse 40. They may impress others but Jesus sees our hearts. And so when leaders all come to that, any Christian is after glory and gold, they will end up, verse 40, being punished most severely. Because, you see, people follow leaders. And so leaders have a huge responsibility to be leading as they should and not leading people astray. A wealth of judgment. The second play on word, our treasure in heaven. You see, it comes in verse 43. Jesus said, verse 43, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. And the word treasury here has echoes of an eternal treasury, our treasure in heaven. You see what an encouragement that is. Jesus sees when we've given sacrificially. Oh, others may not see it. And Jesus sees it and he says there'll be a treasure in heaven. People see a widow giving two copper coins which seems like nothing to them. People may see a mum giving an hour to help someone else and it might seem like nothing to them. 
But Jesus sees if it's the only hour she had left in the week and she had to go out of her way to help someone. And Jesus sees when the coins are the last we have left in our purse. Jesus sees these things. And so he says, be encouraged. There will be a reward in heaven, treasure in heaven. Because if your life is being given to him, if he is the focus of everything, if he is the glory that you live for, you will be with him one day and you will love him so much. Your treasure will be in heaven. There is a reward in heaven, but until we receive that reward, here's the question, who will you aspire to be like in the Christian life? The scribes or the widow? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you again for your word that uh, even though at times it's hard uh, listening to it, uh, we thank you that you speak to us because you love us and you speak to us sometimes hard words to make us more the people we ought to be, knowing that as we become more and more like the Lord Jesus, it's not only for your benefit, it's good for us too. We've been singing some words of total commitment and we've been seeing in this widow a woman who was totally committed. And I guess all of us can say that we're far from that. But we do, in our hearts, want to be like that. And so we pray, Lord and God, that by your Spirit you would not only challenge us, but transform us and change us, that we may be a living sacrifice. And we pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we're going to sing, and during the singing of this hymn, there will